When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is On The Mark, pleased to be joined in studio by my guy Robert Ford, the play-by-play, the radio play-by-play voice of your Houston Astros who are going to win the World Series. Robert, what do you think? We'll see. Still a lot that can happen between now and then, but I mean, they're as good as anybody, so we'll see what happens. So I'm looking at the Astros. I'm doing extensive research. I see you got 11 guys with more than 10 home runs, of course, led by, uh, what do you call them, George Dinger, Springer, 27 big ones? Yeah, and uh, uh, ties a big league record. Only uh, three other teams have done that, including the Astros in 2015. So that's what I was going to say. I, like, I knew you would know the stats on that. That's got to be some form of record. So yeah. what is it again? Yeah, so the two... 2016 Twins, 2015 Astros, and the 04 Detroit Tigers are the only other three teams that have had at least 11 guys in double figures in home runs. And that we're in the middle of August right now. Yeah. This, this video is going to last forever. <laughs> but it's just the middle of August. So, yeah. I mean, you, I guess, well, I mean, you maybe even add on to that. Is there a possibility of adding uh, Probably one other guy, uh, one of our top prospects, oh. one of the Astros' top prospects, Derek Fisher, yeah. uh, who has, I believe, four right now. So okay. he has a chance if he goes on a run and he's hit for power in the past. Right. So did you see the dominance, at least up to this point? I know that you guys have lost right now nine of the last 13, but did you see the dominance coming? I don't know that anybody ever sees uh, a season like the Astros have had where, you know, they've been, I mean, they're 13 games up in the division right now, which is actually the lowest they've been in, in uh, several months. So I don't know that you ever predict that a team is going to dominate their division the way the Astros have so far this year. But, I mean, I think 
everybody knew the Astros were a pretty good team, made the playoffs in 2015, just missed out on the playoffs last year, uh, made some moves in the offseason that would, would make them a little better. Their young players getting a little bit more mature. So I, I think there was a sense that this was a team that would compete for a division title, but I don't know that anybody expected a double-digit division lead at this point in the year. I want to get back to the Astros in a second, but I want to talk about you, Robert Ford, because I've known you for a while now. We both worked in Kansas City. Yep. You were, at the time, the pre- and post-game host for the Royals. I was kind of uh, your assistant. So well, I prefer the term lackey, yeah, actually. Right, yes. right, right. I, 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 was, I was the reporter who would go into the clubhouse, get the sound, come up and, and do a segment with yes. you on the post-game show. It was a ton of fun. You... But it's, I just I love your story because you know one day before you were there and you did a bunch of minor league baseball, but you started your career out as a fan at I want to say Yankee Stadium calling a home run next to somebody who's eating a hot dog there. That's how you made your demo tape. Is that accurate? My first demo tape, which I took to the baseball winter meetings in 2001, was play by play I did from the stands into a tape recorded Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium. Did both. Yankees and Mets games. My first call on the demo was my call of Mike Piazza's home run against the Braves in the first game in New York after 9-11. Wound up being a go-ahead home run, big deal, uh, and the Mets won that game. But that's how I got my, my first play-by-play job in the minor leagues was with that demo tape. And who was that job with? The Yakima Bears uh, for the 2002 season, short season Northwest League, 76 games in 80 days, and they lost 22 in a row that year. One of, I believe it's three minor league teams since 1990 to have a 22-game losing streak, and I was a part of it. That's amazing. What did, uh, what did Yakima pay you for your 80-game season? Do you remember? If I remember correctly, my take home every two weeks was like 550 bucks. That's not bad. It's, you were a rich man. Well, I, I, I had left a job where I had made 40000 that previous year. So, yeah, it was a bit of a, uh, bit okay. of a, a decrease. Right. So you were, you know, one of those, you went to Syracuse. You were one of those guys. But you weren't like, you weren't like Johnny Syracuse. What is it? What's that, ra- <laughs> what's, what's, what's that radio station? W-A-E-R? W-A-E-R, the yeah. famous station. I was, I'm probably one of the few, if not the only, like, play-by-play alum from Syracuse who never spent a day at W-A-E-R. I mean, that more than anything else, the, like, doing play-by-play in the big leagues, the fact that you went to Syracuse and didn't do W-A-E-R, that could be your greatest accomplishment. <laughs> you, did you want to do W-A-E-R and they wouldn't let you? Well, I think what it came down to for me was, you know, I went to Syracuse and I wanted to be a broadcast journalism major, and so that's what I majored in. And uh, I thought initially I wanted to be like a sports anchor, sports reporter. And then about latter part of sophomore year, I realized what I really wanted to do was play-by-play. Well, at WAER, I mean, one of the good things about Syracuse is it's so competitive. You have so many people who go there wanting to be in sports broadcasting, wanting to do play-by-play, and so it's extremely competitive to get on the air at WAER. So I knew that at that point it was probably too late for me to get on the air doing play-by-play at WAER because you basically need to step in first day of your freshman year into WAR and say, I want to do play-by-play. There's a whole track. There's a progression. You work your way up. And I was going to be well behind uh, my classmates at that point. So that's why I decided to do things a little differently. So, and there are a lot of people that even as a sophomore in college, knowing that you sort of delayed yourself and your track was quote-unquote blocked, even though it's not really, they would give up right there. Where was the internal confidence, I can do this, belief, I'm going to give it a go anyway? Where's that coming from for Robert Ford? I didn't know any better. And so I just kept trying to figure out a way to get play-by-play experience, a way to get on the air. Uh, I knew I wanted to do baseball. I wanted to do other sports too, but baseball was number one. I'd sit in the stands at the Carrier Dome doing Syracuse basketball and football games and uh, 
I think it was one of those things where I just kept working at it and just tried try to find opportunities. Did high school football for WZZZ. <laughs> I think it was 1300 on your AM dial in Fulton, New York, outside of Syracuse. Uh, and the, my, my salary for doing, I think I did three football games for them, was $0. All right. And, uh, but ZZZ stands for zero. Apparently, that's what it stood for at that time. But, you know, it was all just a chance to get on the air. And one right. of the great things about Syracuse is that not just the school, but also the market is such that there are lots of opportunities to do things in radio, do things in television, get on the air, do stuff off camera, uh, behind the scenes. So I was still able to find, I interned at radio stations. And I did some rinkside reporting for the minor league hockey team on their radio broadcast. I still found ways to to get on the air. I mean, wasn't doing exactly what I wanted to do, but I just kept working at it and working at it until I finally got to a point where I, I was able to figure out a way to, to get teams to hire me to call games. So, okay, that's a, that's a tremendous, like, I think you learned some in that you were, you'd be built up some like strength to the business because you, you need it because you know it's going to be. You do, but for me, it was just, I was just like, I want to be on the air and I'm just going to figure it out. And <laughs> I just was, either too dumb or too, you know, too tunnel vision to think about doing anything else or think about, hey, this is really hard and what you're trying to do is really difficult. None of that ever crossed my mind. And, right. I mean, and, you know, being young, I was willing to move anywhere, do anything. I mean, I moved to Yakima, Washington, for crying out loud. And I'd never been, uh, I think the far, I'd been to Arizona once, but beyond that, I think the furthest west I had been was Arkansas. Right. But I, that didn't matter to me. It was just like, this is where the opportunity is going to be, so I'm going to go where the opportunity is. Was that a drive to Yakima? Was that a flight? Was that a train? bought my first car about a month or two before I moved there and drove cross-country to Yakima, Washington. You drove cross-country to Yakima, Washington? Yes, did, by myself. Did you stop? Do you remember? As a matter of fact, I, don't I know had why a this friend. Me, but it does. I had a friend at the time who was going to grad school at Purdue. Okay. And uh, I went to visit her, and we went up to Chicago. It was the first time I'd ever been to Chicago. Spent an entire day, went up to Wrigley Field. Cubs weren't playing at the time. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that was the first time I ever went to Chicago. But uh, that was really the only stop that I had. Okay, and then from Yakima, where do you, where go, what happens next? So I was out there for um, eight months. I stayed there after baseball season, worked for the uh, CBA team, Continental Basketball Association, for those kids that don't remember that. That's <laughs> the league that preceded the D-League. That um, Isaiah Thomas killed it, for those who do remember. I'll let you yeah. fill that part in. But uh, yeah, I worked there after, actually after it had restarted uh, the Yakima Sun Kings of the CBA. I was an account executive for them after the season ended. It was miserable for a variety of reasons. It wasn't a good situation. I wasn't cut out for sales. Uh, and so I just applied for jobs everywhere, wound up getting a job with a radio station group in Kalamazoo, Michigan, initially just to call baseball for the independent league team that they had there in the Frontier League. And that morphed into a full-time job at the radio station doing small college and high school basketball and football, doing news anchoring and reporting. And so I wound up being out in Kalamazoo for two years. Uh, and then from there, got hired by the Binghamton Mets, AA affiliate of the New York Mets. And you grew up, uh, if we grew up a Mets fan. I grew so up now, a Mets fan. So now you're in the Mets organization, so to speak. I mean, really you are. That's pretty cool. Right. I, I worked for their AA team and uh, got a job with them. Did that for four years. And while I was out there, also did uh, you know, basketball and high school football and various other things while I was out there. And then from there, went to um, Kansas City, which is how we met. My program director in Kalamazoo got a job in Kansas City at that station, and that's how I wound up there. I forget his name. Ryan McGuire. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. You didn't forget his name. No, I, no, I didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, four years in Kansas City, and then um, Astros had an opening 
uh, on their radio broadcast team and my fifth year with the Astros. And I was actually, myself, I was working in Houston at the time, and I remember you coming down to try out to, to interview. To interview, yeah. In, in, uh, in the dead of winter. That season, if I may tell the story, I'm sitting there in a September Astros game. This is when they were terrible trying to yes. rebuild. The only good player they had was Jose Altuve. So being the Mark Carmen that I am, I, was, uh, I joined a guy a, fr- a, fr- a row in front of me, and we did the Altuve chant. And it literally rang out through the entire stadium, Minute Maid Park at the time. Is it still called Minute Maid? Still called Minute Maid Park. Okay. So, I, and then being the Mark Carmen that I am, I called the post-game show, and I said that that was the worst atmosphere I've ever seen in a baseball <laughs> game. And, he, and the guy, he called me out on it, and he's like, well, well, where were you? Were you cheering? And I said, I was the guy yelling Altuve. <laughs> <laughs> He said to me, that was you? Because you could literally hear it. I oh, mean, yeah. it was, it was, there was nobody there. Well, and that's how it was. I mean, my first year, 2013, the Astros lost 111 games. Worst season in club history. They lost their last 15 games in a row that year. Right. Uh, just, just a dreadful season. But, I mean, it was all part of the plan. They were rebuilding. But it was their third straight 100-loss season. And that's, I mean, that's difficult for anybody. Yeah. Now, some people say that that's the whole thing because, like, the White Sox are doing it now. The Cubs did it and it paid off from the Royals. Yeah. Did it, but a little bit different where Kansas City was just bad for, for that long. But there is a whole movement now. you got to get bad to get good. Do you think that's a, a problem for the game when it's a big market team that's you know choosing to lose and, and in the process they actually make a ton of dough? I think it's one of those things. It's just the way the, the game is set up. I mean, you don't, what you don't want to be is in the middle. Right. You don't want to be a team that wins 85 games every year, maybe makes the playoffs, probably misses it. Uh, and just kind of middle of the road. You need to be good or you need to be bad. I mean, that's just the way. I don't know whether it's good or bad for the game. I think one thing that's helped, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, you think about the White Sox right now, like you mentioned, who are doing a rebuild. I think it's a lot easier for the White Sox to sell that to their fans because they see what the Cubs have done. They see what the Astros have done. They see Mm -hmm. what the Royals have done. So I think that's the good thing about it. I think when you think about five, ten years ago when teams were starting to do these sort of teardowns, it was a lot harder to sell the fan bases because there was no light at the end of the tunnel or so it seemed. There was right. no model franchise. But now you can look at several teams that have done it and have been successful and you can say, all right, I see where this is going. I can be a little bit more tolerant of it. So I think that right. makes things a little easier for a team like the White Sox. Right. I mean, I've, as a Cub fan watching, it's like, okay, at least there's a plan now. Right. And there's right. the Theo Epstein and... The White Sox also got a head start on their rebuild because they had Chris Sale to trade and they had Quintana to trade and they right. had a great trade. I think trade. it's nine players they traded for 19 guys since yeah. December. I mean, right. that's, that's how you do things. Right. Okay, so uh, let, let's talk about what the playoffs look like for the Astros. I think the big concern has got to be the starting pitching and getting guys healthy and I mean, how do you how do you see that playing out in in, in the best case scenario right well, now? Well, I think it's not just starting pitching. I think the bullpen to a certain extent as well. Yeah. Uh, I think you know Dallas Keuchel getting healthy was big. Colin McHugh getting healthy was big. Keuchel unfortunately has not been very good so far since coming off the DL. But you have to figure with his track record that record that he's going to figure it out. And there's some signs to make you think that he will. Uh, Colin McHugh had a bad outing uh, his last time out against the White Sox, but has been very good since coming off the disabled list. So that's encouraging. They need to get Lance McCullers back, who's on the DL for a second time with a back injury, and hopefully he'll be back in another two or three weeks or so. Uh, And then with the bullpen, you know, Will Harris, who was an all-star last year, he's on the DL right now, hopefully coming back in the next couple of weeks. That's something that needs to improve. And I think one thing that hurts them in the bullpen is they don't really have – 
uh, a left-handed reliever who has a track record of getting the good left-handed hitters out. You know, Tony Sipp had been very good for a couple of years for the Astros, but hasn't been good this year, wasn't good last year, currently on the DL. Uh, they did trade for Francisco Liriano, who had been starting for the Blue Jays to be that lefty reliever. Maybe he'll be the guy, but the, but the jury's still out on that. Um, and so I think that's something that's an area of concern. Uh, and then you look at what happened at the trade deadline. Liriano was the only uh, addition that the Astros made. And, I mean, you can, you know, it's easy to say, well, they should have done more. We don't really know what those phone calls were like. We don't really right. know what, what they were doing in that room. Uh, but bottom line is they didn't upgrade at the trade deadline. So that means that you're relying even more on Dallas Keuchel getting it back together, Kyle McHugh being healthy, Lance McCullers being healthy. Who was the Astro that spoke out saying, yeah, I got to be honest, I am disappointed we didn't make another That one. was Keuchel who yeah. uh, had those comments that kind of went viral. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, of course you're going to be disappointed uh, as a player, but I think players also recognize that uh, they have a job to do and the front office has a job to do and they just have to worry about doing their job. And at this point, I think sometimes for the players, it's a relief when the trade deadline's over. You don't have to talk about it anymore. Right. So now you just focus on playing baseball. And I mean, look, this, this Astros team is best record in the American League. So the guys they have are still pretty good. It'd yeah. been nice to add, but it's not like they have a bad team. Right. Let's talk about you a little bit more here. So how many African-American radio play-by-play guys or TV are there in baseball right now? There's one other in baseball. that's Dave Sims, who does mostly TV and some radio for the Seattle Mariners. What, is that, what does that mean to you, to be in that position? I think, uh, you know, I never looked at myself as being like a trailblazer. I mean, I did this because I love it, and I love baseball, and I've always been a big baseball fan, and I thought play-by-play was something that I, I could be good at and make a career out of. I mean, I think... You'd like to see uh, the broadcast, just like you like to see the players on the field, just like you like to see management. You like to see it reflect the fan base, and baseball's fan base is very diverse, right. uh, and diverse in terms of gender, diverse in terms of ethnicity. And I think I'd like to see the uh, broadcast reflect that more. Right. Um, and they don't right now. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Some of them aren't necessarily anybody's fault, but it's just the way things are right now. So. You know, when people ask me about, oh, would you like to see more black broadcasters? I'd like to see more everything. I'd like to see more Latino broadcasters. I mean, you know, you'd like to see more female broadcasters because I think uh, you want the sport to reflect the diversity of its fan base. And also, too, I think it's important for fans to think that there's a place for them in this game and that they belong in in baseball. You know, when they see a female broadcaster, hear Susan Waltman, who's done Yankee games for years, or... Maybe if they, I mean, they don't get to see me on radio, but, you know, maybe they feel like, all right, well, there's a black broadcaster. If, you know, you're a young black fan or someone just getting into baseball, maybe you feel like, all right, there's a place for me in this game because I see people who look like me, who sound like me, doing these things that I'm interested in and and following the sport that I'm interested in. And one of my favorite things about you is, like, a lot of times in the broadcast world, because it's so hard to make any money, people tend to come from privilege. They have have some money cushion behind them so they can sit there and make no money forever and hopefully it works out. You really weren't that guy. I don't don't know your old family, but you were were a New York kid. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't poor, but, I mean, my family certainly wasn't wealthy. Uh, I mean, we, we did okay, but... Uh, but yeah, I definitely didn't come from what you would call privilege. Like the standard Syracuse kid, if we were going to name it, I mean, that's a pretty wealthy guy. It's oh, a sure. Oh, right? I wouldn't have been able to go there without tons of financial aid. I mean, right. that's a fact. Uh, still paying student loans, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's one of those things where, for me, and I think this what happens, also what happens, I mean, you mentioned, you know, 
being from privilege and being able to not make a lot of money and go to these small towns. I think also, too, for a lot of people of color, you know, you're less likely to go to Yakima, Washington. Right. Like, you're going to be thinking, well, is there going to be anybody out there who, who looks like me? And, you know, that sort of thing. For me, I, I, just, I just didn't care. It just didn't matter to me. I just, I, I, you know, was, I wanted to do baseball. I had blinders on. It, you know, if I had to go to Yakima, if I had to go to the moon, it didn't matter. But for, for a lot of people, that matters. Well, and the other side of it is, like, I'm just imagining you driving cross-country. And just the reality is, black guy at night, driving cross-country, it's not, it's not, you don't really want to be in that position. You, you don't. Sure. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's not something that everybody's going to do. Uh, yeah. But, again, for me, that sort of stuff didn't matter. I mean, I certainly noticed it. Uh, I mean, and I'm not kidding you when I tell you that I can count on two hands when I was in Yakima the number of black people I met who were from Yakima, Washington. Right. Uh, maybe even just one hand, but definitely not more than two. <laughs> right. Uh, but again, it, you know, I still met some great people out there, had a great time. Everybody was very welcoming. It was a great place to start my career. Uh, you know, Kalamazoo, you know, similar, although Kalamazoo was a little bit more diverse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's still something that you're gonna you're gonna realize. But I just never it just never bothered me. I never thought of myself as, you know, trying to blaze a trail. It was just like, hey, this is what I want to do. Well, and you're the voice of the Astros right now. I mean, you and Milo Hamilton are not exactly uh, totally similar. I hope you have the, <laughs> I hope you have the same Hall of Fame career as as Milo did. But that's a, I mean, that's a different sound. It's a different look for for Houston too. I mean, I think it's an interesting place for you to be. Yeah, well, I think what helped me is, well, first of all, Milo was very good to me when I, when I got the job and basically replaced him yeah. uh, before he passed away. Uh, but I, I think what helped me, too, was the fact that um, I didn't grow up in Houston. I, didn't gr- I mean, I knew who Milo Hamilton was. I'd heard him a few times, but I didn't grow up listening to him. Right. So for me, you know, like I remember when I got the Astros job, you know, I'm getting all these questions about, hey, what's it like to succeed Milo Hamilton? It was something I never really thought about. I mean, right. you know, you realize it, but I was just like, you know, I... I mean, I hadn't grown up listening to him, so I didn't feel like there was this huge shadow, uh, even though there probably was, but I think it was good for me that it was something that I didn't think about because it was, I didn't grow up listening to the Astros and rooting for the Astros. Right. Let's do one uh, final baseball question. Yeah. You, you sit there every night, three and a half hour, four hour games, and I've sat there with you, and I'm always wanting to, let's go, and you just, you're totally fine. You'll sit there all night. But being there every night, and if you... We were to tell baseball, here's my one recommendation on how to speed the game up to make it a little more time-friendly to those who have to go to work the next day. What would you say? I think the biggest thing is to uh, reduce or eliminate as much as possible the stuff between pitches. That's really where it comes down to. Hitters walking around a home plate dirt area. The catcher who makes a million mound visits. Right. Uh, I think those are the things that really slow the game down. And you don't want to completely get rid of all that stuff because that's part of what makes baseball the sport that it is. And it's never going to be, you know, fast pace with the ball moving every two seconds. It's never going to be that. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing a pitch clock. Uh, I, but I think definitely you want to reduce a lot of that time between pitches from the pitchers, the catchers, and the hitters. And I think if baseball does that, you'll start to see it's not even so much time a game, it's more pace of game. Right, Because I, I, mean, I agree. We've all seen games that last four hours, but, you know, they're 13 to 12, and they're exciting games, and there's back and forth, and so you almost don't even realize 
that the game's taking as long as it is because it's just so action-packed. Uh, but, you know, it's a little different when it's a four-hour game and it's, you know, five to two, and it's like, well, this shouldn't take nearly as long as it does. And, you know, the pace wasn't very quick. So I think if they get rid of a lot of that dead time between pitches, then, uh, then the pace of the game will improve. Robert Ford, pleasure to talk to you. You're going to be in the World Series this year. I can feel it. We'll see. Cubbies, Astros. <laughs> Thank you for watching On the Mark. This is Robert Ford, the radio play-by-play -play voice of the Houston Astros. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.